already and turn to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts 4 this morning. Uh, if you didn't receive a note sheet on the way in, didn't pick one up, and you would like one, there are plenty of folks in the back getting some. So if you'd like a handout, it has fill in the blanks for my outline. It also has all of the references that I will refer to. So if you would like a handout, just slip your hand up, and somebody would be happy to bring you one of those. Uh, any church member that needs a handout should be charged for forgetting. But visitors, guests, you can have one free of charge. Uh, but anyway, Acts chapter 4, again, all of, our, all of the, the main points, all of the references are there in the handout to help you follow along. The book of Acts is after the book of John and before the book of Romans. It's in the New Testament, and so uh, that's the location of that book if you need help finding it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And so that is where it's at. We've been preaching our way verse by verse, more or less, through the book of Acts. And we are in the end of chapter 4, and we will finish chapter 4 today. I've been getting a lot of uh, positive feedback, uh, people talking about uh, this method of preaching, or the book of Acts in particular, and the lessons that we've been learning from it. And I just want to remind you that if God has used these messages to speak to your heart, that has little to do with me. God has promised to use the preaching of His Word. That's why we place such an emphasis on the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. The Bible says that we value preaching because the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And so if God, if God has used this preaching to work in your heart, I just want to remind you it has very little to do with my skill as a preacher. There are a, a multitude of preachers far more skillful than I am at expositing the Word of God. It has nothing to do with my age or my experience. It has nothing to do with my education. Any faithful Christian man can open this book, read what it says, and be used by God. Any man that is filled with the Spirit of God can take this book and be used by God. So if your heart is open and ready this morning, God has something for you in His Word. And if you are willing to let Him work in your heart through His Spirit, He will. It's not about me. Uh, it's not about my opinions or my interpretations or my particular method of approaching the text. It's all about the Spirit of God using the living, powerful Word of God this morning. So praise the Lord for blessing the preaching of His Word in spite of me and my many shortcomings. You like me so much because you don't know me very well. So give it time, but God uses men in spite of their shortcomings. That's just how faithful He is. We left off at the end of chapter 4, and uh, these messages always take shape differently, and as I prepared this outline, I had no idea how long the message would end up being by the time I finished it, so this is another three-parter, okay? This is another uh, three-part message. We'll get to part one this morning. That's why at the bottom of your notes, uh, if I remembered, there's some blanks already filled in for you because we're not going to get there today, but that's just to help you follow along with the outline. So we will only get to part one today, but we're going to pick up where we left off in Acts 4, 32 
And we're going to read down through verse 37. So follow along with me as I read. It says in verse 32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who was by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This morning we're going to start off uh, by examining a church inspired. A church inspired. In verses 32 through 37, we see that the church in Jerusalem, having faced opposition from the religious leaders, if you recall, Peter and John were arrested. Uh, They were brought before the council. They were told, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. They faced opposition, and in response to that, the church body together prayed for boldness. They prayed for the Spirit of God to enable them and to empower them, and God answered that prayer with a fresh filling of the Spirit for service. He gave them that boldness. He gave them that empowering that they so much desired. And so here in just a few verses, we catch a glimpse of the characteristics of a Spirit-filled church. What does a church look like that's filled with the Spirit of God? And I want you to see three of those characteristics this morning. Notice, first of all, we find oneness. Oneness in the church. It says in verse 32 there in Acts 4 that the multitude of them, the multitude of them, there were thousands of them, if you recall, that believed were of one heart and one soul, Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. They had oneness, first of all, in spirit. Oneness in spirit. One author wrote, The spirit rested upon the entire community. First, in the very way they had asked, so that they spake the word with boldness. Next, in melting down all selfishness and absorbing even the feeling of individuality in an intense and glowing realization of Christian unity. They had this oneness in spirit. This oneness in spirit. Notice what it says there. They they are of one heart and of one soul. One heart and of one soul. One word study wrote that in Jewish thought, heart was the center of intellectual activity, and soul was the seat of the will. So taken together, they are inclusive of the total inner being of the person. The expression may be expressed verbally as they thought the same things and they wanted the same things. That's what that phrase of one heart and of one soul means. They thought the same things and they wanted the same things. This church in Acts was one in spirit. How in the world is this possible? I want you to consider that. How is this possible? This group of people had not been unified in spirit before. 
These were people from all walks of life. These were, as we discover even in this passage, rich people and poor people. These were men and women, which was different big time in that culture in that day. These were former tax collectors, former prostitutes, together with Pharisees that got saved. These were fishermen and businessmen. These people could not have been more diverse, and yet they had oneness. Some of them were from out of town, had come for the feast and never left, but they had oneness. How could such an amalgamation of individuals possibly be unified in heart and soul, possibly think the same thing and want the same thing? They all had one thing in common. And I want to remind you of this truth from 1 Corinthians 6.11, where in 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle gives this long list of sinful behaviors and characteristics and says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This people, this church, this multitude of believers had oneness in spirit because Christ had made them new. Because Christ had transformed their heart and lives. Because they were saved. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. They were one because Christ had made them one. They were living out that oneness together. They were living out the commands that we find in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beseech you rather, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. They were one because Christ had made them new. Has Christ made you new? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ? Have you been baptized by that one Spirit, joining into Christ's body, being placed in the body of Christ through faith in the one Lord, as the Bible says, and by the grace of, of, of the one God and Father of all? Do you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you come to grips with the fact that apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are destined to face an eternal penalty of torment in a very real place called hell. Did you know that Jesus Christ took your sin upon himself on the cross? I know a portion of my sinfulness. And Christ took all of that on himself on the cross. Do you know that he died your death and took your penalty? for your sin on that cross? 
Did you know that he died on that cross, was buried in a tomb three days and three nights, and then literally and physically rose again from the dead? Did you know that his resurrection conquered death and secured eternal life for all who will receive it? Did you know that he's ascended back up to heaven? He's seated on the right hand of his Father and offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life as a free gift. It is by faith in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection that we receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. As Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man bo should boast. And if you have received it, if Christ has made you new, then I want you to consider yourself this morning in light of the example of this church in Acts chapter 4. Consider your actions and your motives. Are you a Christian that, as the Bible commands, endeavors to keep the unity of the Spirit in the church? You're working hard at this thing. You're purposing to do this thing. You're diligent in this thing to guard the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. Are you contributing to the oneness of the local New Testament church, or are you sabotaging it? These Christians were one because they were walking in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Are you? Your behavior reveals your character. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conversation, your lifestyle, your behavior, your conduct, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians 2, he says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What spirit motivates you exactly? Is it the spirit of strife? Of ego? Or arrogance? Or is the Holy Spirit producing His fruit in your life in meekness and love and peace, in long-suffering and gentleness? This is not a spirit that we can gin up on our own as Christians. It's a product of our walk with Christ. And a spirit-filled church will be one in spirit because they are tuned to the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. The church in Jerusalem was a very diverse group of people, but they were one in spirit. Why? Because they were filled with the Spirit of God. And I wonder 
if God were to describe our church, what would he say? In Belfast, Ireland, there's a stately home called Castleward, built in the 1760s. The original owners of the house were Bernard Ward, the first Viscount of Bangor, and his wife, Lady Anne. And one of the most interesting features of the house is that it has two styles of architecture. The rear of the house is built in the Gothic style. The front of the house is neoclassical. You can look it up online and see the pictures. It's built that way because Bernard and Lady Anne could not agree on which style to build the house. Not only did they differ in their architectural preferences, they apparently had other differences because eventually their marriage fell apart. Depending on your point of view, this house in Ireland is either a celebration of diversity or a monument to stubbornness. Many churches over the years have been monuments to stubbornness when they could have been filled with the Spirit. And how would God describe our church and us individually? They had oneness in spirit. And this led to them having oneness in sharing. In sharing. Look what it says in verse 32. It says that the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. So this oneness that they had was not just some warm, fuzzy, touchy-feely, you know, emotional oneness. Their oneness manifested itself in their actions. They were one in sharing. The Bible says they had all things in common. The word common means being of mutual interest or shared collectively. Another word study said belonging to several. One way I could illustrate it uh, colloquially is this, that you know, way back when we uh, had our first house, my wife and I were looking to a, for a place to live, and we found back then that it was cheaper to build in a rural subdivision than to rent a place in town. It was actually cheaper for us to build a new house than it was to get a, you know, a two, three-bedroom apartment or something like that in town. And so uh, on the map, they showed us a plat map. They let us pick our plot, you know, a postage stamp kind of thing. And, but we got to pick it. We were the second or third phase of that particular subdivision. And so we went through all that process, and we picked it out. And so while you're looking at the map of the subdivision that has all of the individual properties marked out, there were also areas of that subdivision marked out as common-use areas. In other words, no particular homeowner in that subdivision would own a portion of that land. But every homeowner in that subdivision could use it. It was common use. This was the mindset of the church. It was brought about by their oneness in spirit. Someone said, from this unity came a mindset. Each member chooses not to look at his possessions as first and foremost his own. Rather, he chooses to see them as first and of all available for common use. And that's what we see the Christians in Acts 4 doing. They looked at the material possessions completely differently than they had before they were saved. 
Second century Justin Martyr said this. He said, We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have to a common stock and communicate or give to everyone in need. This Christian lived between 100 and 165 A.D., and he said, before we valued above all else the acquisition of wealth, and now we value a common need. These Christians didn't hand over all of their possessions to the church. That's not what they did. They didn't say, all right, apostles, you have, uh, you have the ability to take anything that I have and give it away. All my things belong to the church. This was not that. This was not a change of ownership. This was an understanding of the biblical concept of stewardship. That all that we are and all that we have and everything that we have accomplished as individuals and all of the things that we have stockpiled, all of it we owe to God. There is nothing in your life that God has no claim over. The earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, and the fullness thereof. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, is from above. And the Spirit-filled Christian realizes that everything that God has given him remains available for God's use. That we are just stewards of what God has given us. And this is what we see happening in the church in Jerusalem. This was not a change in ownership. This was an understanding of stewardship, of those that possessed things made it available to the Lord to be used to meet the needs of others in the church. They did not regard those things as their own any longer. This is exactly what 1 Timothy exhorts us to do. It says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to, to communicate. Both of that is giving. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The concept there is this, that if God has blessed us with means and with things, it is not wrong for us to enjoy those things, but we also must be ready as individuals that have been blessed to distribute of those things, to give of those things if God lays it on our hearts to do so. Ready to give, willing to share is the concept there. All too often, we think of stewardship as simply a matter of our giving to God. But this is secondary. Before we can give, we have to possess. Before we possess, we must first receive. So stewardship is, in the first place, receiving God's gifts. And then once we receive those gifts, they're not solely for our own good or our own benefit. They must also be used to benefit others and ultimately to give glory to the God who gave it. The stewardship, uh, the, the, the concept of stewardship, a steward needs an open hand to receive from God and then an active hand to give to God and to others. How tightly do you hang on to the things that God has given to you? How quickly we say in our own hearts, well, that's mine. That's mine. 
I worked hard for that. No Christian in the Spirit-filled church had that attitude in Acts 4. They showed oneness in sharing. Not only notice their oneness, but also notice their outreach. Their outreach. Verse 33 says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There's two aspects of their outreach there. First, notice the might of their outreach. It says with great power, the might of their outreach. In facing opposition, in being literally commanded not to preach the gospel, the church prayed that God would give them boldness and pour out power on them. And immediately we see that that prayer has been answered. The might of their outreach, they have divine boldness. They have divine boldness. They not only witnessed with power, but with great power, the Bible says. The word power there is the same word that we get our word dynamite from. With great power they witnessed for Christ. These men declared the risen Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. This was not power in and of themselves. They did not hype themselves up through willpower and determination. They didn't have rallies ahead of time so they could go out and give the gospel. This was Holy Spirit power. Because great power to witness does not come from within. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Paul the Apostle himself said in 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul the Apostle probably could have given some pretty incredible conferences on the Old Testament. But he said, my, my preaching was not my own. It wasn't man's wisdom. It was the power of the Spirit of God. And that's what we see in the church. Their power to witness came from the Holy Spirit of God. And then they were duty-bound. They were duty-bound. There was a second motivation that drove them forward in their witness for Christ, it says, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That word gave is interesting because it means to give back or to pay back a debt or to meet a contractual obligation. It's used for fulfilling various responsibilities or fulfilling your duty to someone else. The apostles understood their calling and their mission, and in giving the gospel, they were fulfilling their duty to Christ, their obligation to Christ. They had received their marching orders directly from the mouth of Jesus himself, and they were fulfilling that commission. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul said, it doesn't, there's no glory in me preaching the gospel. I have no other choice but to preach the gospel. We have done which is our duty to do. You know, the apostles understood a very basic truth that we often neglect to realize 
as Curtis Hudson said, that the only alternative to soul winning is disobedience to Christ. The only alternative to soul winning is disobedience to Christ. In giving the gospel, they were fulfilling their obligation. How are we doing in that area? The might of their outreach was the empowering of the Spirit of God and the understanding that they had a responsibility before God to do so, as they said before the Sanhedrin, before the council, you should judge whether we should obey God or obey men. We have a higher calling. You remember that? And notice also the message of their outreach. The message of their outreach, it says, they gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is exactly what they were instructed not to do. You may not preach this resurrection any longer. They were not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. They were not to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or they would face opposition, arrest, you name it. But they didn't change their message to suit the culture of the critics. Their message stayed the same. They did not find some way to accommodate the religious leaders so as not to offend them. Their message stayed the same. Because if they had changed the message, there would be no power in it any longer. But they were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And no matter what the world may say, we must keep the message of the gospel pure. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24 says, We preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Are you sharing the simple message of the gospel of Christ? You know what we often do? We often stop short of the full gospel. We often stop short of the message. So often we're happy to hear that our neighbors go to church. We're satisfied to hear someone else say the name of Jesus. We're glad to know that you were raised in a Christian home. You must be all right then. And we are content to stop short of the message. But are you sure, in witnessing to those around you, are you sure you've given the whole gospel? The whole gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 says in verses 1 through 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I deliver unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. Romans 10, 8 and 10 says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13 and 14 say, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Don't cut the gospel message short, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear if you do not tell them? Their outreach was mighty, and their message was very clear. They had oneness, they had outreach, and then there was an outpouring there. An outpouring. Verses 33 through 37 says, With great power gave the gospels uh, the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who was by the apostles' surname Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. As we've already established, but just so you don't forget, all of this that is happening here at the end of chapter 4 is a direct answer to their prayers for boldness and power. God's power was evident working in them and through Him. It was manifesting itself in an outpouring of, first of all, God's grace. God's grace. God's grace is unmerited favor. In the case of the church in Jerusalem, this grace was upon them all, the Bible says. It was upon them all. This could mean that God's special blessing was on them, and of course there's evidence of that, but frankly, any church that is spirit-filled, unified, and sharing the gospel is going to see God's blessing and favor on that church. God blesses obedience. God blesses faithfulness, and this church definitely met that criteria. This can also be interpreted to mean that they had favor with one another. That the grace of God in each of them manifested itself in their relationships with each other. And we also find that in the church in Jerusalem. They really cared for each other. They were good to each other. Either way, God's grace was obvious in this church. Why? Because they were spirit-filled and because they were focused on Christ. Are we? Can God bless our attitudes? Can God bless our actions? Can God's grace be poured out in this church based on your walk with Him? There was an outpouring of God's grace, and then also with that came an outpouring of generosity. Here we see God's grace in action. The Spirit of God working through the people of God to provide for the needs of the body. There were those in the congregation that had lost everything by placing their faith in Christ, by publicly professing Christ. There were many in the church that had needs, but the Bible says no one in the church lacked anything. Why? Because those that had wealth liquidated that wealth, gave it to the church, and the church met the needs of the poorer Christians. They met real needs felt by real people, and the heart of the church in Jerusalem was so tender here that those that had needs saw their needs met, not by promptings, not by peer pressure, 
not by fees, not by guilt, but by grace. By grace. Spirit-filled Christians act on their faith. This is the argument that James makes in James 2. What does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 John 3, 16 and through 18 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's so many other verses in the scriptures that we could apply uh, this principle from. But the fact of the matter is this, that in a spirit-filled church, Christians care for one another, not out of duty, not for recognition, as we'll see soon as we continue in the book of Acts, but out of love, both for Christ and for each other. Next time we'll get to these following points, we'll see in Chapter 5, a cheap imitation. What happens when Christians try to make a name for themselves by impersonating spirit-filled living and the crescendo of influence of the church? But the questions posed to each and every one of us this morning are this. Can you truly be one in this church, with this church, do you know that you can only be unified with this church if you know Christ as your Savior? Spirit-filled Christians are one. You can only be one with the church if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've been saved by His blood. Are you contributing to the oneness of the church in your actions, in your attitudes, or are you sabotaging it somehow. And I know that this is a difficult principle for us just in looking at all the discussions around Acts chapter 4 and 5 over the centuries. And as Americans, how tightly do you grip onto your stuff? How tightly do you hold on to those things that God has given to you? How quick are you to share those blessings, in particular, with other believers? Do you realize and recognize the responsibility that we all have to share the gospel? And in your gospel witness, are you truly sharing the whole gospel, or are you cutting the message short as soon as somebody acts religious, or says they go to church, or claims the name of Jesus? Are you cutting the message short? Or are you giving the whole gospel of the risen Christ? Do you see the grace of God manifesting itself in your heart and life? It should manifest itself 
in the way you treat other believers in particular? Does the love of Christ make you generous? Or are you just talk, as James says and John says? Does your life reflect the characteristics of a spirit-filled Christian? Because it can. Because all of us as Christians are as close to God as we want to be. Does God consider this church a spirit-filled church? We're going to take some time to respond. I'm going to ask Hannah to come and play quietly for us and give you an opportunity there in your seat to pray. In a moment, we'll have an invitation. But you take this time. If God has spoken to your heart, you do business with the Lord right there in your seat.